Key Aero, your aviation destination. Historic Aviation. Hello and uh, welcome to the Fly Pass podcast for episode 34. We're joined by author Thomas McKelvey to talk about, amongst other things, his latest book, Under the Southern Cross. Uh, hello, Tom. Hello. How are you doing, James? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, from where I am, it's sort of end of uh, play work time here, but it's morning where you are. Uh, you're over in America. So wh- whereabouts are you? Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Oh, very nice. Very nice. How long have you been in Los Angeles for? Is that somewhere you've been sort of growing up or? No, I've been in California since I came out here with the Navy. And I've been in Los Angeles now for 42 years. Oh, well, that's very nice. Um, yeah, so I, I had a, a brief look at your resume and uh, you've had quite a checkered uh, career, really. I mean, sort of you were a serviceman, Hollywood screenwriter. Um, so so start, with the, start with the early days, shall we? So what was your uh, military background? Oh, uh, my military background, I... Uh, I joined the Navy right out of high school and uh, ended up on an admiral staff in the Far East. And uh, that turned out to be the unit that was in charge of the destroyers that became the, the Tonkin Gulf incident, the start of the Vietnam War. And uh, I came back from that in 65. And uh, so I was, I was there for the opening of it. So Navy's always been in your blood. That's all sort of, you know, what you've always done. Yeah, I write, I write a lot about the Navy. We were involved with naval aviation. We had, most of the units we worked with were patrol bomber squadrons that patrolled off the coast of China and Vietnam and Russia. So with you, is it a case of you know, right about what you know? Well, I've been a lifelong airplane nut. My mother used to tell me that the uh, their, her favorite story about me was that the first word I ever said that was understandable was O-plane when uh, P-38 flew over the park we were sitting in. And my father was involved in aviation in the 30s. But at one point, he worked for six months for Roscoe Turner, the air racer. So I sort of grew up with the wind and the wire, so to speak. But you chose the Navy as your career. So what, what was the thinking there? Oh, well, I went to the Navy because the nearest naval base to Denver was a thousand miles away. And it was very mm-hmm. likely if I'd have joined the Air Force, I'd have been back at Lowry Air Force Base. And I wanted to go see the world. <laughs> That's fair enough. I don't blame you for that. Um, so military career. So you, you was um, Vietnam. That was your era. Yes. And um, so I have a new book coming up that's about Vietnam. It's the first time I've written about our war. Okay. Um, which, which one's that one? That'll be uh, the Tonkin Gulf Yacht Club. comes out in October. It's about the naval air war in North Vietnam. Okay. Okay. But for this book, uh, which is Under the Southern Cross, um, so let's talk a little bit about that one. What, what was the background for that? Uh, it's funny. The, um, I now have a quadrilogy of books about the Pacific War, but I didn't start out that way. Originally, there was going to be one book about the new Navy that came to the Pacific in 43 and would have gone to the end of the war. That book was Pacific Thunder, but I got about halfway through it and I told my editor that, you know, this is going to be a pretty long book. And we thought about it and decided to cut it in half, which I didn't mind since I was getting paid for two books now. And so I got Pacific Thunder, which is the Central Pacific Campaign, and then Tidal Wave, which is the last nine months of the war, the bloodiest nine months. So then I decided in my so well-organized way that maybe I ought to write a first book. So I started writing this book, Under the Southern Cross, and so I would have a trilogy, except for the fact that my background chapter, which was about the six months before, the, the six months after Pearl Harbor to Midway, I suddenly realized 
that there was a lot more there, and I had a lot more from interviews I'd done over the years, and that uh, telling the story is two great disasters and three major moments of hope wasn't really the story. And so I, uh, I contacted Marcus and said, you know, Marcus, there's a second book here. In fact, it should be the first book. And that became I Will Run Wild, which is, which funny enough is a completely accidental book, and it got the best reviews so far, uh, professional reviews of any of the books. It came out last October. So if a reader would like to read my books in chronological order, they would start with I Will Run Wild, which is the first six months of the war, Under the Southern Cross, which is the South Pacific Campaign, Pacific Thunder, which is the Central Pacific Campaign, and Tidal Wave, which is the Home Islands Campaign. I'm not one of those writers who sits there and plans everything out to begin with. I, it, uh, it's what hits me that, uh, oh, yeah, I have them interpreted. Fortunately for me, I spent 40 years interviewing a lot of people for uh, various magazines. And since uh, virtually nobody from World War II is alive anymore, it's hard to do interviews. And I have all those interviews which helps a lot. So where did you sort of get started? I mean, when you were serving there, were you still serving with people who had World War II experience? There was a lot of World War II guys. When I was in the Navy and I was a young sailor who, who asked intelligent questions and had the good sense to keep his mouth shut for the answers. And um, I heard a lot of stories then. I happen to be an Aspergian, and it turns out that my particular superpower is that I have a nearly unlimited memory if I'm interested in something. If I'm not, it goes in one ear and right out the other. And so I started collecting those things and remembering them. And then in the 70s, um, I started doing freelance work for magazines. This is a sideline at the time. And um, found out that there was a ready market for anybody wanting to write about somebody from World War II. I once had a book agent tell me that here in the United States, there will never be too many books about the Civil War or World War II. And uh, they are good areas to mine for commercial success. So it turned out I had a good knack for doing interviews. I, I one time talked with uh, Chuck Yeager, and I actually ran out of questions, and I was really embarrassed. I'd been talking to him for about an hour and a half, and he was with me the whole time. And after the interview, I was walking away with his publicist, and I was berating myself for having run out of questions. And, and he said, don't you know he never talks to anyone more than about 15 minutes? He has little things he says to me to stop it. And he never said any of them. You had him in your pocket all the way. Oh, wow, that's a story. And I think Chuck Yeager is a complete hero, isn't he? I mean, you think about all the, you know, what yeah. he'd achieved. My first job in the movies was working as an assistant to the unit publicist on The Right Stuff. And uh, one of my jobs was driving uh, General Yeager around. And when he discovered that I really knew who he was, and that changed the nature of our relationship, and we became quite friendly. And uh, I even got a chance to go flying with him in his Bonanza once. Oh, wow. Now, he would land so smoothly, you had to look outside to see if you were still on the ground. <laughs> so, I mean, was that purely just for working as a scriptwriter, a screenwriter you got into? That was what you were doing in Hollywood, I believe. That was funny. It almost started out by accident. I uh, I got hired to work taking photographs of a of an airplane movie because the guy ran across me at an airfield where I was taking photographs. I, I'm a photographer who writes, a writer who does photography. It's a double threat there. And uh, so I got working on the picture, and, uh, and I started reading the script, and I went, you know, people don't talk this way. And in my vast amount of knowledge of how the business worked at the time, which was exactly zero, I sat down and rewrote a scene that we were having trouble with, 
And the next day I gave it to the director and said, I think this will help you. And people around looked at me like, you know, are you crazy? Have you done, are you, do you know what you've done? And I immediately realized that I had overstepped some sort of bounds, but he took it and he looked at it. And then the actor grabbed it from him and looked at it and said, this really works. And they went, they went out and shot it and it did work. And that evening after we closed the set for the day, he came up to me and he said, you know, there's a few other places here that could do some rewrite right now. I'll give you a thousand dollars if you do that. And uh, I thought to myself, well, that's nice. And I did it. And uh, I didn't get the thousand dollars and the movie never got completed, but that was my introduction to the movie business. And uh, it turned out I have a, a good, because I'm a photographer and because I'm a writer, screenwriting is a hard thing because you're trying to put into words what the audience is going to see in pictures. And so for me as a photographer, I'm able to visualize a scene in my mind. I mean, like I can almost visualize a scene of what you're doing while we're sitting in public, no relationship to reality, but I can come up with it and I could describe it. And then somewhere along the line, all those years I spent watching every Saturday movie at the old Park Theater in Denver uh, rubbed off and I had some idea of what good is. Nowadays, I, I don't think I could get into the movie business nowadays. It's, it's so different. But the thing is, from um, what I've read of um, your book so far, I mean, we've got the uh, excerpt going in the November issue of Flypast. It does come across like it could almost be a scene from a movie. Well, I think, you know, that's the lucky thing. I do think dramatically. It's funny, when I got my degree in history, and I had a lot of arguments with the professors back then, because that was when history was becoming deliberately obscurantist, looking at small things and writing in what I thought was deliberately obscure language. And I used to say, you know, look at the good history. I mean, look at Tacitus, look at Herodotus. I mean, they knew how to write. And, uh, and you know, you can go right on up from there. And if you look back at a lot of the major historians around, they had experience either in writing drama or in journalism. There's an English author who all he has to do is put a book out with his name on it and I'll buy it. And that's Max Hastings. And Sir Max comes from uh, journalism. And so he, if you're going to attract, you know, you and me to an article, it's got to be written in a way that attracts our attention. And that's what his books do because he knows how to do that. And there's a lot of people that do say reading my book is like watching a movie, which I take as a compliment. It's just that after you know, 25 years of doing that, you get a certain ability to, to say, ah, this is a dramatic moment. I will play it up as such. Well, the segment that we're running in the magazine, it's like there's a dogfight, there's five Betty Bombers and two Zeros destroyed, plus four Wildcats. Is it, oh, right. is it, yeah, this aircraft the exploding. The guy in Sutherland, the, the, yeah. the most interesting dogfight that happened in Guadalcanal. Yeah, the first time I ever heard about that was when uh, I was a kid and I bought Sakai's book, Samurai, the one that he wrote with Martin Kaidin, or the one that Martin Kaidin wrote for him is more accurate. Anyway, um, he wrote a little bit about Sutherland being in an airplane. He was not familiar with the American Navy airplanes at the time, and so he was peppering the, the Wildcat, and it wasn't going down, and he was used to planes going down, and it turned out that was his hardest-fought victory in his and uh, for Sutherland, it turns out that the real adventure for Sutherland happened after the fight. The airplane went down on the northern end of Guadalcanal, and it took him two weeks to get back to where the Marines had landed. The fight happened on the day the Marines landed on Guadalcanal. But he, uh, he spent five days 
wandering around lost and then ran across some Solomon Islanders who took him into their village and fed him. And then they agreed to take him to the Americans. And uh, he eventually ended up in a canoe traveling at night. And, and, uh, and fortunately, he got to the Marines two days after Henderson Field had opened for operations. And one of their doctors took one look at him and said, yeah, you're going back. And uh, he was on the next flight out, which happened to be Admiral McCain's PBY, and he was on his way to Espiritu Santo. And uh, he later, he, he had a very full Navy career, he eventually retired as an admiral. But it's, hey, just the way you described it, it's one of those things, if you pitched it as a, you know, a scene in a Hollywood film, you think that's a little bit over the top. You know, people, you know, bedding out and then getting across the jungle. And then it's, it's just one of those things that actually it's... Um, how would you best put it? It's an ordinary person doing extraordinary things, isn't it? And that's what a lot of these guys did. Yeah, um, that's why, you know, World War II, well, almost any bit of war writing, you know, there's drama there. So anybody who has, you know, any ability with it is going to pick it up. Um, I've been a reader since I, my, grand, my grandmothers were both teachers and they taught me to read when I was four. And I was an avid reader. In fact, I think I self-educated myself during, the, during school by what I was reading at home. It was much more interesting than what was being passed out at school. And that soaks up. I've taught a couple of writing classes, and the first question I ask them is, how many people here have read 10 books in the last year that they didn't have to, that they wanted to? And uh, nowadays, there's fewer and fewer people answer at 10. But uh, I just tell them, if you're going to write, you have to read publishable writing so you know how it works. It works by osmosis, I think. But uh, I don't know any good writer who isn't a major reader. Well, that's it. I mean, you, you've got to read out and you, you've got to have a, a wide um, understanding of literature before you can it's, actually... It's like being a screenwriter. I used to go to the movies every Friday night to see what was new. You know, to, oh, you can do that. Oh, you, you can do it that way. That's interesting. I'll, I'll remember that little trick. What I like about this book as well is that it's told from both sides, the uh, Japanese and the American, which you don't normally get that when you get a dogfight um, scenario. Yeah, I, you know... It's only been in the last 20 years that that's happened. Uh, Henry Sakaida, he's a Japanese-American uh, researcher, and he went over and interviewed people. And for a long time, there wasn't any knowledge outside of Sakai's book, which dates back to 1955. There wasn't that much about what the other side had done, or at least not here in the United States. And so finding out, being able to put both sides into a story, well, that's where the drama comes from. My Tonkin Gulf book that's come out, I had the really good fortune. It turns out that a lot of the naval aviators after the war, well, since we normalized our relationships with Vietnam, a lot of them have met their opposite numbers that they fought against. And many of them have actually become friends. And I got introduced that way to several North Vietnamese aviators. And I also got the uh, historian of the Vietnamese Air Force. And he sent me their official history, which many Americans who were fighting there have read that and said it's better history, more accurate than what we've done. And putting both sides in the air at the same time in the, in the same situation allows for a lot more understanding of what's really going on. And as I say, it becomes more dramatic that way. And uh, I'm finding that, you know, if I can do that, I prefer it. And also, there's, a, there's an old saying in, in screenwriting, don't kill somebody you don't know. There's an old joke among writers about red shirts. If you remember the original Star Trek, they would go down on a on place in your three stars and a bunch of guys in red shirts. And it was the guys in red shirts that you didn't know who got killed. But if you're going to you know, have something harmful happen to someone, 
it's always best to know who they are. That way you actually care about them. That's very interesting. And I have to say, I'm definitely a Star Trek fan. I don't think you could be, uh, in, my, in my line of work, that would be a little bit geeky about things like that. Yeah. So, you know, using a little bit of dramatic picture in a screenplay, you have to have both sides. You have, you know, your protagonist and your antagonist. You can't do a dramatic uh, piece without having both sides. So involving them both like that is just a good way to, to tell a good story. Absolutely. I mean, I've read a lot of pilot biographies and history books over the years, but I have to say it's probably the first time I've actually come across a dogfight told from both both sides, and I think that just puts a, a completely fresh slant on it. They say you care about both sides. Well, the fortunate thing with being able to do Sutherland was uh, my friend, the late Eric Hamill, died last year. Eric was one of the very first people to start interviewing guys from World War II. In fact, I found in his records after he died, that his first interview that he ever did was with Turner Caldwell, who was um, one of the big names of the Guadalcanal campaign. And I looked at the date in his interview notes, and he was 17 years old. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a really good interview. But he interviewed Sutherland, and so I was able to get Sutherland's story, and he had Sakai's story from his book, and so you could bring the two accounts together. um, In terms of the the title, where where does the title, Under the Southern Cross, come from? Uh, under the Southern Cross, if you travel south of the equator, you know that starry sky that we have here in the Northern Hemisphere is much less so down there. And the main um, constellation in the Southern skies is the Southern Cross, which you know you find on the Australian flag. Under the Southern Cross, it was a was a good title. It's a very good title. It's very poetic. Yeah, it's like I used for the first book. I used "I Will Run Wild," which was um, Admiral Yamamoto saying the statement to the. Japanese authorities that if I have to go fight, I will run wild for six months, and after that I can guarantee nothing. And he came up four days short of six months when he could no longer guarantee anything at Midway. But, uh, yeah, choosing a punchy title is um, is still always a good idea because whether you're perusing the stacks of a bookstore or you're looking through the listings at Amazon, an interesting title will make you pause and say, hmm, what's that? It sounds like you still really, really enjoy your writing as well. I mean, you... oh, writing is the one thing that I really, well, I also build plastic models pretty well. <laughs> that, that, that's hardly commercial, but um, writing is the one thing I do really well. And uh, to me, it's fun. I can get up every day and I can say, well, I'm shoving off today for, you know, the waters of Iron Bottom Sound. And fortunately, uh, I'm, of all my writer friends, I think I'm the only one my age who's still actively writing and who has an open contract with his publisher to uh, be able to pretty much do what I want the way I want to do it, So, which is a real nice thing after Hollywood. There's nobody at Osprey who thinks that they're a guaranteed writer because they can sign your name three times. Yeah, <laughs> Here in Hollywood, you ran across all kinds of people who thought they were writers because they were literate. Semi-literate. Semi-literate. Writing a book, and also, in a funny way, writing a book is like getting to be able to do everything in a movie. You get to be the sound guy. You get to be the cinematographer who's posing the pictures. You get to be the, the actor with the dialogue. You get to be the director having things happen. So writing a book is like getting to do it all. So would you say your experience in Hollywood sort of has colored how you write? Would you say that's affected how you produce a story? Yeah. I think of these stories the same way I used to think of a screenplay. My friend James Lee Burke, who's a very good novelist, once said when he found out that I was a screenwriter, he said, that's like trying to play the blues with handcuffs. And he's right. With a book, I can do 100,000 words. 
with a screenplay, you got 120 pages maximum, 200 words per page. But that's also a good thing because it makes you consider every word and make certain that the word is useful. I've often said to friends of mine that it's harder to write 500 words than it is to write 5,000. That is so true. 5,000, you don't have to worry that every word is, but with 500, you've got to make certain that literally every and and the really needs to be in there. I also had a journalism background after I got out of the service and writing for magazines. So I learned to, you know, write something that'll catch the reader's attention soon and uh, don't waste their time with too many words. Yeah, because you, you kindly shared a, a piece that you done on one of your models on, on the Lancaster. Uh-huh. That was an interesting read. That wasn't just about a model. That was There was a lot of stuff in well, there. Well, yeah, the interesting thing is that plastic models are kind of why I'm doing this. Um, I got to a point uh, in Hollywood where the company I was working for as a producer folded up shop, and I got to discover that all of a sudden I was too old for Hollywood. A 30-year-old director doesn't want a 60-year-old writer being the smartest guy in the room. He brings up all their daddy issues. But uh, I suddenly found myself at loose ends, and my then-girlfriend, now my wife, made a suggestion to me that, well, you know, the Internet is pretty interesting. I actually hadn't been paying much attention to it yet. And I ran across that website, which, which in those days was 10 of those little AOL websites connected together to make it. And um, started writing, and the neat thing was I could sit there. I wasn't getting paid to write anything, but I could write. And since that's what I do, I ended up doing it. And uh, people suddenly realized that, you know, hey, you know, half of the audience that likes my stuff comes to it for the story of the airplane, and the other half comes for the airplane. Almost all modelers are history buffs to some degree or other. And uh, one day I uh, picked up my email, and there was an email from Tony Holmes at Osprey. He'd been looking around the net, and somebody had recommended that, you know, there's this guy that writes at this website. He's pretty good. So he asked me if I would be interested in writing one of their ACES books, and I ended up writing ACES of the 78th Fighter Group for him. And uh, so building the airplanes when I was a kid, I started asking myself, why was that airplane used? And my dad would say, go to the library and get a book. And uh, then why did that war happen? And that's how I taught myself history. So the airplanes and the airplane models were essentially the doorway into everything I do in my life. <laughs> and now if someone tells their child to go to the library and get a book, they get one of your books. Yeah. And um, whenever I run across something that's got me stumped for a while writing it, one thing I've learned is that the way to get rid of writer's block is go do something else. And eventually your brain will figure out your situation for you. And so um, I have the computer that I'm writing on, and then I have a little work table over in the corner with a project sitting on it. And if I get a break, I'll take um, half an hour, an hour working on that, and I'll get through and I'll go, oh, okay, here's the idea, this will solve it. and I go back to the writing, and yes, indeed, I solved it. So it's an interesting mix. People still come up to me and say, you know, I read your model article, and it made me decide to go get one of your books. So it's good advertising. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you ever uh, run dry on uh, material either. There's always something on the back burner. Yeah, you read about the bomber command. Uh, I was not aware until I read Max Hastings' book, Bomber Command, just how bloody that war was. But there was an interesting statistic. There was 165,000 guys who served in Bomber Command in World War II, and 65,000 of them were killed, and another 15,000 were wounded, survived to, you know, survived to get home as wounded. That's worse than the infantry, and everybody thinks, oh, the air war was nice and clean. No, it wasn't. The U.S. 8th Air Force flew their first mission over Europe 
on the same day that the Marines landed at Guadalcanal and flew their last mission over Europe about the time that the Marines felt they cleaned up Okinawa, which basically their last battle. And the 8th Air Force lost more men dead and wounded than the Marine Corps lost in Okinawa. That's crazy statistic, isn't it? The air war was very much bloodier than people think. Well, that's it. And it's thanks to people like you writing about it that, that next generations uh, are going to be aware of these statistics. I like knowing that stuff because I was in and I knew people who were lost. And um, there are writers who do, you know, sizz, boom, rah, rah, rah. And then there are others. And uh, I like writing this way because it turns out I get a lot of comment from readers that, you know, I never thought of looking at it that way. You've made me rethink things. And, uh, you know, when I hear that, I say, ah, thank you. I did my job. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if somebody wants to read Under the Southern Cross, uh, obviously it's available from Osprey. Um, but as you said, there's a, a chronological order they should read it in. So you say... You, know, you can get it at Amazon. Amazon's around the world. Um, the last time I looked, it's actually selling at a uh, one of Amazon's bestseller prices. Excellent. And you'd recommend that people should start with, with uh, I Will Run Wild as the, as the intro story and then go to Under the Southern Cross? Right, yeah. I Will Run Wild, Under the Southern Cross, Pacific Thunder, Tidal Wave. But you'll find, in the, interesting enough, that, that there will be information in Tidal Wave you wish you had when you were reading I Will Run Wild, because as I said, the author did not plan to do the whole thing as one entire whole. Each one was a standalone book. <laughs> so actually, because they're standalone, a reader can read them in any direction they want, but the more historically minded read it that way. It sounds a bit like uh, Tolkien-esque to me, you know, um, read the Silmarillion and then fill in all the gaps for the other books. Yeah, exactly. I don't think Tolkien was planning the big trilogy when he sat down the first time either. I think we do talk all day, but I think we'll leave it there for now. Um, I'm sure we'll talk again at one of your uh, later books, Tom, um, but thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, great. Thanks. And uh, by the way, I'm a long-time White Pass fan. Excellent. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.